0: Laura Keeley, founder and managing director of mediation. Welcome to Discipline.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: When you were a young girl, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I wanted to be a vet until I did veterinary work experience. And then that was the end of that in year 10.
0: Putting animals to sleep?
1: No, it was just the operations. I decided I wasn't a medical person. So a lot of my friends went off to medical school and I was like, no, not doing that. And then I started watching LA Law. And that's when I got the fire in the belly to be a lawyer.
0: Yes, yeah. So did you become a good student wanting to be a lawyer or were you just naturally a good student?
1: I was always pretty academic. Yep. Academically oriented, pretty competitive in that, I think. And, yeah, so... I had the dream of being an advocate, which sort of ties into the story a bit later on about why I went back to the bar. But I was always very focused on my studies all the way through. Didn't take a gap year after year 12. I wanted to get straight into uni and then didn't take a gap year after uni, went straight to work. But yeah, eventually I'm sure I will.
0: Academic family?
1: Yes. So my father was uh, literally an academic at university. Right, um, okay. my okay. Yeah. My mum was the head of English in secondary school, so...
0: Big focus on Big books. Big focus on academics. Yeah, yeah, right, okay. And um, you started law about the same time I did actually, about 1998, and then followed a path to those magic circle firms in London. Say you were competitive, what was driving you? What was, where did that competitive spirit come from?
1: Oh, look, I think the, the move to London was really, that was, if anything, my sort of gap year. I think that that was where my husband and I, had this dream that we wanted to go overseas and work in London which is a pretty well-trodden path and so that's how I ended up doing corporate and not litigation was that after nine eleven happened and the market dried up we were interviewing at that point and there were no jobs and then I got one of the first jobs coming out of that crisis into the new wave of deal making and so we were told if you want to go to London do corporate or banking so we both did corporate and I really enjoyed it and I loved the transactional side of it and so that really took me to Slaughter and May in London where I worked for the best deal team I think in town over there in 2003 to 2006. But, yes, I kept going doing corporate until one day I woke up when I was back in Australia having had my two children and thought I don't want this partnership, I don't want to do corporate anymore. And the reason I did law was not to be a corporate partner um, and certainly to not an to advocate. manage a law firm. Yes, it was to be an advocate, and so I sort of thought it was my last career change at 38 that I, I didn't want to do it particularly in Australia, and I think I miss slaughter and may too much, and so then I thought that's it. I'm going going to go to the bar.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you say going to London was like a gap year, but I know some of those Slaughter May lawyers and they were doing 85, 90 hour weeks, pretty much every week. So that yeah. doesn't sound like much of a holiday.
1: It wasn't a holiday, but we crammed it in. I mean, we traveled as most people do once a month.
0: Friday night To Europe, so Friday on, night. Off to, on the easy jet. Friday
1: night on the easy jet, Sunday night back circling um, Heathrow airport. <laughs>
0: On the, uh, what do they call it? The racetrack.
1: The racetrack. And we loved it and had a lot of friend, met a lot of friends over there who were Antipodean or South African and yep. sort of had great dinners and, yeah, they had a, a ball. But Slaughter's was pretty gruelling in
0: terms of the workload. Yes. I can't imagine anyone really wants to come out of that and be a partner. I mean, people do, but uh, it's pretty brutal.
1: The quality of the experience over there was so good. And the partners were so smart, I think, that coming back here, I think you can find that in pockets in Australia. But the deal size is so small that it just seems sort of rudimentary in comparison.
0: It's very hard to get on those massive deals in Australia and they're well protected by the partners who have been around for
1: That's right. And if, years. if there is a deal that big, it's the Australian arm of it and it's just an Australian local asset sale and it's not quite the same. But there are good things that we did, but it certainly wasn't the same scale or quality of client base.
0: You get an opportunity then to do a secondment at ANZ, as Blakes did with a lot of senior associates. My time at Telstra was saying before it was a wash with BDW lawyers. Was this your first then exposure to an in-house environment?
1: I had previously been sent to Newclicks, which was Priceline.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Um, out in the boondocks, really. And I quite liked that. So yeah, when I came back from London, they asked me to go down to ANZ, and that was good. It confirmed for me I didn't want to be an in-house counsel.
0: Yeah, okay. which was good. Yep.
1: I preferred being. I preferred the more sort of academic side of it. I, I found being an in-house counsel was was interesting from one perspective, but all the good stuff was getting referred back to the externals. So I didn't really like that feeling very much.
0: Yeah, my view was uh, a lot of risk gets passed back from the corporate to the law firm because they've got, um, you know, better structure to be able to manage it. Mm. And did you see anything in there that was appealing though? I mean, at that point, had you had any sort of anything that sparked an interest outside of the law or were you still on this pathway to go and be an advocate?
1: No, I was still on the pathway. I mean, I guess... One of the things that I did enjoy about slaughters in particular was how close you got to the clients because they were client-oriented firms, so you did everything for them. So, you know, if a client did a public or a private deal or a raise or a takeover, you were the lawyer that did that. So it was very well rounded and you were close to the commercials. I do like that part about in-house and I did I did sort of see that a bit at ANZ. But there are so many lawyers there as well that you it's a tiny fragment. And I was doing MA, so that was fun. I think we did E-Trade, the E-Trade Yeah, actor. right. That was a good deal. That was a good deal. But no, I was still very much on the legal path at that okay, point. Okay, but
0: you've had exposure now to two sort of tech platforms, I see, from this in-house yeah, that's experience. True. You go to Cause, staying as a senior associate. Partnership, as you said, you know, didn't want to go down that path. So how do you make the jump? And tell your employer i'm going to the bar is that an easy decision is it uh, something that has to be managed quite carefully i mean i was in corporate so
1: i think the senior associates in litigation are always managing that risk because everyone knows that that's a well-trodden path i don't think they would have expected it from me because it wasn't something that i'd ever raised with them but you know it was an interesting time i think it causes a great firm and i enjoyed my time there but again they i, I did find at that point that it was just too small and I felt like I wanted to stretch out and do something different.
0: Yeah. From all the other partners that look at you within the firm, what qualifies you over any other partner to be in that role? What's the skill set?
1: I think they asked me to do it because I'd had that international experience, because I had a breadth of experience in corporate law that I could manage things and probably also just maturity and discretion, to be honest, because you're managing you know, the exits of partners who are senior to you. You're managing you're watching the partnership process unfold and it's all pretty sensitive.
0: Yeah. Any conflict with colleagues? You know, you're now acting for the partnership rather than working as a senior associate to a partner. Big challenges, lots of pressure there.
1: Hmm. Kind of actually prepared me, I think, for this job a bit. I was very much working for the COO and almost in a quasi-partnership position in that I was you know, the, the head of the legal department. So it was up to me, I guess, to seek help where I needed it, but otherwise to manage it. So, no, it was it was a definitely a journey and I, I really enjoyed it.
0: You don't take any outside work when you're in that role? It's you only... don't take
1: any outside work.
0: Yeah, okay. And was there anything about the business side, you know, the way the financials were structured that was unexpected?
1: No. I mean, I think if anything, though, it gave me that more exposure to to the balance sheets and the finances and understanding actually how a business is run. So I had a pretty decent understanding of how business was run from doing due diligence back in the day where that meant you literally got the boxes wheeled into your room and you read the contract. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: You
1: You read everything. (laughs) Which I have to say is the best way to learn how to draft I think because I just absorbed it and could draft a contract from scratch. I'm worried about the junior lawyers whether they have that now but anyway that's an aside but I think sitting with the COO, I actually really did get a sense of what it's like to run a business, and so that I think probably helps me now.
0: Yeah, definitely. Off to the bar, hard question to answer, but what makes a great barrister?
1: The bar is a really funny beast. It's quite archaic (laughs) so in some respects. I mean, personally, I think what makes a good barrister is, well, firstly just brutal intelligence because the questions that get brought to you at the bar are the harder questions that nobody else can answer. So often you find that by the time it gets to you, the people are in dire straits or they need to appeal or it's just, it's a difficult scenario. And, you know, when I was getting asked to do advice pretty early on, there were really hard questions. I remember a large insurer sent me this really sticky reinsurance question and I had to go and read in the library for two or three days did a great advice, they were really happy, but it was basically an answer that nobody really knew. So that sort of academic capability, I think, is really critical. Yes. But what I think makes a good barrister is people who are commercial, although it's pretty rare because you can sort of cut deals well when you're settling and, and advise a client from the perspective of actually understanding what goes on in business. Yes. And I found that that was where my greatest success lay was being able to cut through all the rubbish and say, well, hang on, I think there's an outcome we could potentially get here or understanding why something's arisen and being able to unpack it and say, well, I can see the business reason why that's an issue. I think that's actually really
0: useful. That's really interesting because, you you know, you're sort of cannibalising your future work there by giving this kind of advice. You do. But I think that's probably what
1: partly sparked a mediation was to see that that was quite rare, that not many barristers give that kind of advice. It's very, It tends to be rooted in the case law and prospects and stuff and not necessarily so close to
0: business yeah i had a a partner i won't uh, dump him in it who was very pragmatic the way he gave advice to people saying you do not want to go down this path it's Mm -hmm. going to cost you money it's going to cost you time it's going to you know potentially suck out your life force you know i would strongly suggest you don't you should find a way to settle and i think that was always stuck with me as good advice but when you get to a point where you go to the bar, you say there's a lot of complexity and you give good advice, but there's still unknowns with the advice you give because, you know, until you get in front of a judge and you get a judgment, sometimes it's, you know, what did Oliver Wendell Holmes say, "There's law is what a judge decides on any given day.
1: Absolutely it is. And that's the other key skill set, I think, is being able to distill very complex arguments to the very simple and be able to sort of move and change with the judge because you don't know where they're going to go. And I had, I guess, quite a good experience of doing a pro bono matter in the Court of Appeal and it was the first time I'd appeared on my own in front of two or three sort of appeal court judges. And it was amazing because they were testing me and, you know, I hadn't really had that experience of that level of um, preparation where you need to know absolutely everything because they're going to find the weak points and they get to them. pretty damn quickly (laughs) yeah
0: and it's in what mental dexterity being able to think on your feet pull reams of information out at the drop of a hat it's a it's a real exercise under pressure
1: i think so absolutely and i mean and then the cream on the top of the cake is those advocates who can make it all sound beautiful and you know their use of choice of language is powerful and you know it's the the performance side of it
0: yeah yeah there's a bit there's still a bit of theater to it isn't there
1: there is, but that's an interesting point in the whole digital age. Whether that, how hard that is now, and whether or not it's still really important or not.
0: Yeah, I mean, I sort of wanted to go down this path at one point. <clears throat> Spent time in um, in various chambers, sort of doing work experience, and there was one particular moment. Again, I won't dump the minute in Sydney where I was uh, in the Supreme Court uh, helping on a matter, and uh, the barrister running at the SC was having very difficult time with the witness. And getting nowhere for hours just being stonewalled and then he sort of rummaged around whispered to a few people someone passed him a, a sheet of paper it wasn't me and he sort of looked at it and then sort of stuck it behind his back and then started asking the same questions and the witness changed their tone completely went from pure stonewalling to maybe i need to be a bit honest here because he got something behind it what's he got behind his spec. back and it was brilliant. So it changed the whole nature of the dialogue, and it was all theatre. It was nothing on the paper. So well,
1: that's interesting.
0: Yeah, it was old, really old school sort well, of. File
1: that away for we ne- <laughs> 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 um, get back to cross examination.
0: <laughs> so seven years at the bar, mm. you touched on how mediation came about. COVID presumably accelerated this, or was this pre-COVID? You're starting it's to
1: pre-COVID. So I started it four years ago. And it was really in response to what I saw, I guess, coming from that blue chip sort of corporate uh, work that I'd done, the litigation I'd been exposed to was at the most, the the, the sort of upper level, I guess, where you've got listed companies engaging in litigation and they can afford to pay. And I hadn't really been exposed to the rough and tumble because I wasn't a litigator. I was a corporate lawyer. And so I came to the bar and thankfully passed the exam and That was all great and did the reader's course, which was fun because I was on my feet for the first time and then, you know, had my experience of going to Bendigo courts to do cross-examination and making a truck driver cry, (laughs) which was fun, all of that kind of stuff. But then I just, three or four years in, it was just this repeated thing of getting to see litigation in that sort of SME space and how traumatic it was. And this is not even the disadvantaged people. This is people who have money. Yeah you know, that there are directors or shareholders and they, they can afford to be there to a point, but how crippling it was. And, yes. And often people saying to me, I thought there would be justice or I don't understand why I've spent more money on lawyers than I have on the dispute and this just kept coming up. Yeah. And I guess I was a little bit naive in thinking, well, why do we have this system? I mean, it's there's no technology, there's no streamlining. Many solicitors are fantastic, but... Some of them drag it out, and it's not that they're not acting ethically. They're acting perfectly within the bounds of what's ethical, but you can just tell that they're not in any hurry to settle. Yes. You know, why is there no viable alternative to all of this? And so that was really what started it, thinking, well, is there any way that we could use technology?
0: And does it strike you now looking back as a bit of a crazy thought? Because, you know, you're... It's totally crazy. In your own words, it's an archaic sort of institution, slow moving. How did you think that they were ever going to adopt technology? I
1: don't know. I think it was totally nuts. And, of course, the first couple of years of development were entirely in private because, you know, I had this idea and then I got a quote for the app and then you might find this amusing. I got a quote for an initial, basically a version of the platform, which was a portal really to go on my website where people could seek what is effectively expert determination that was the original idea and so I thought well so often when a client first comes into the office I think well if you just do xyz you should probably settle for x
0: yeah you just know and you say that that.
1: but then they go through the process and I thought well if you could just get everybody to the point where they'd sort that expert joint determination then it probably would go away that was the original sort of nub of it so I got that quote was 80 grand and I of course, didn't have 80 grand because I'd left my nice job at course to go to the bar and I was just sort of getting close to where I may be earning somewhere similar to where I was. And so I said to my accountant, I've got this nuts idea and she's like, what are you You're thinking? You're
0: barking mad.
1: So <laughs> barking <laughs> mad. So I remember walking to the junior bar conference and had this quote and the deposit was 10 grand and we went to the junior bar conference and who should turn up but Michelle Gordon. Michelle Gordon was talking about technology and online dispute resolution and said something to the effect, I wish I was 30 years younger because I want to build this kind, I wish I could build this kind of thing and I'd love to be where you guys are now. And I was sitting there thinking, I want to be where you are and you're saying you want to be where I am. I have to do this. And so I took out my phone and paid the deposit. And
0: then- That's a a serendipitous moment. A serendipitous
1: moment. And I had no idea how I was going to pay for it. So I went back to my office and I rang my super fund manager and said, can I have 80 grand out of super if I set up a company? And he said, "As he's very straight-laced, this super fund manager. And he said, no, you can't. That's a, a related party, but I want to invest. And he said, I'll invest 30 grand. And that's how I got going. And then I went to Another bank,
0: serendipitous the moment. bank of
1: mum and dad and said, what do you think about this? And they weren't very wealthy, but they said, all right, well, that sounds pretty good. We'll help you. And then... I kind of got eighty grand, and that was it. I started. I I drafted a constitution and shareholders agreement.
0: That saved you a few dollars. Saved me.
1: (laughs) Set up a company, and off I went. That was how I started.
0: Yeah. And then you get the first bit of technology through. Was it?
1: No. uh... So that we ended up actually needing something much more sophisticated. Once we decided that we were doing online mediation, the original idea was surpassed. And some more serendipity, we ended up finding a. A group of former Google engineers based in Los Angeles and they built the platform and they're still with us now.
0: Wow. And you just outsourced the sort of development. They became your development team yeah. in LA. In LA. That's cool.
1: Yeah. So wow. they're awesome. They're still, Sean Montgomery is still our head of engineering and yep. they love it. So we literally started with my requirements and working together with a team of basically shareholders at that point, sort of developed the requirements out and they built it. That's unreal. It was crazy. It seems like a
0: lot of things, the stars just aligned.
1: Yeah, I think it's a combination of that. You can look back on it and say that, but it's also you were looking just hard for work. It. I yeah. was looking for it. Yeah. I think I always knew that I wanted to do something. I, I felt like I had something more to offer and that I was constrained by the environment that I was in. I felt constrained by it in Australian law firms in particular, not so much in London because although it was very constraining, they were also respected very much the individual and so they, although the culture was extremely strong, there were lots of individuals there and they sort of did it their own way. But, yeah, I always felt like I was in a box and I, I needed to break out of it.
0: Yeah, I call them uh, maverick A-type personalities. <laughs> and <laughs> what about, you know, these moments of doubt as you're going down this path? You oh, know, totally. Lying in bed at night and also, like, you've built this career. You've got mm. to the point where your dream of LA law is happening. You're at mm. the bar do you go, if I take this leap, I may be abandoning yep. that dream?
1: I still have that thought every day. <laughs> no, it's not quite that bad now. At the start, I just thought, this is just fear. That's all it is, it's just a feeling. And you, you're going to feel go the fear away. and do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're going to feel the fear and do it anyway because if you don't and someone else does, then you'll be kicking yourself. But also if you don't and no one else does, the problem's not going to go away. Yeah. And that was where I felt actually a sense of obligation. I didn't sort of wake up and want to be a tech entrepreneur, but I just sort of felt this pull that, you know, I could see an obvious answer to a complex problem and why was no one doing anything about yeah. it? Yeah.
0: Well, I think, you know, tech entrepreneur is one thing, but having this incredible domain expertise and knowledge is one of the things that probably lends itself to, identifying a problem knowing it intimately mm. knowing what the solution is and tech then becomes a mechanism to deliver Absolutely.
1: it rather but even than now, a
0: disruptive kind of completely out of left field kind of solution
1: totally and it, it it is in some senses disruptive but I guess what COVID has demonstrated is it's actually not disruptive it's just next
0: yeah right Yeah. A-
1: and it was always just next but you know i'm not sure that people necessarily viewed it that way at the beginning when they were she in the she's barking mad phase some of them probably still think that but the thing about being a deep domain expert means actually someone from a major international law firm said to me the other day we have a lot of technology people come to talk to us to find out what what to do and it seems to us that you just know what to build because you're You've in been, you're the client yes. you're the target audience
0: yeah yeah, I think it makes a big difference.
1: It definitely does.
0: I'm going to jump ahead and then jump back cuz this question's has come to my mind so I have to ask it. So, does immediation solve the problem that it reduces the time and the cost both monetary and mental of justice? Does it actually help in Yeah, it does. It? Yeah, great. It does. Okay.
1: So, I mean, not necessarily in the way that we originally envisaged that it would, <laughs> but we're now building complaints management systems that are entirely new so in in New Zealand we've got one for sport anyone in sport can complain to this service and we're handling it in an entirely new way that's not to say that the original concept of commercial disputes being resolved quickly isn't effective it is and we've had a lot of success in that but I guess we're now doing different things with the technology that we thought than we thought we would do.
0: And the the saddest thing is that a lot of clients who've never been to court and never go to court will never be able to thank you properly for keeping them out of court (laughs) because they'll never know what uh, hell they've avoided.
1: That's possibly true. Yeah,
0: it's a big win. We talked about it just a bit before we turned the microphones on the adjustment and learning process to running a tech company, being responsible to shareholders and having a completely different set of responsibilities to being in a conservative profession where the responsibility is to the court and to the law and to your clients, slow-moving compared to very quick dynamic. How's that adjustment been and growing into this role?
1: I feel like it's a continual growth curve. Thankfully, I think I've been able to stay with that curve, probably because of the background that I have had in corporate law. You know, even very complex ideas like convertible notes and sort of equity structures and MA and and All of that hasn't been an issue for me, which I think sort of helps a lot. The weight of the responsibility for the shareholders rested really heavily on me and still does, particularly the original ones. So we were lucky enough to be able to offer an exit in the last round that we did to those initial shareholders. Hardly any of them took it, but that was a massive weight off my shoulders because they got a five times return and I'm like, right, well, I've sort of done my duty. Now it's on you. I've done my duty. It's on you. And I said to them, you know, this is your risk now, like, eyes wide open please join us on the journey but that was sort of huge relief
0: and your parents carry on as shareholders
1: <laughs> yeah yeah they did <laughs> um, my dad's no longer with us but my mum did and so that is very sweet and helpful because it means that my shareholding you know family shareholding is slightly bolstered so what was i going to say about the the weight of the responsibility is actually quite similar it's, it feels very similar to knowing that you are the buck stops with you as a lawyer to the buck stops with you as MD and we treat ethical and legal problems in the same way. We always do the right thing. We always comply with the law. We I'm sort of big on that and we always try to do business ethically and responsibly.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you have to fight from keeping yourself getting drawn into some of the disputes you see come across the platform? Do you or you can take a completely dispassionate view and you don't even see I don't get p-
1: involved in it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get involved in them at all.
0: You're not a part of you that wants to get involved and see it because the old uh, adversarial juices are still sort of not all gone? No, it's not. (laughs) And
1: and, I mean, I'm very fortunate in that my sister is now running our legal innovation team and she's actually running the New Zealand contract. I needed to clone myself at one stage and I sort of begged for help. Um, She's a litigator of 15 years experience. So she's sort of much closer to the day-to-day machinations of what's going on yeah, nice. with the clients than I am
0: so. yeah it's got a bit of a family business feel it, is, it, it does
1: it does I mean we've got a team of about 30 people so it is a lot bigger than than just us but it's been good having her on board
0: fantastic talk to me about this capital raising so when did you sort of pinch yourself and go my god I've got a, a business here this is fantastic and then when did you go actually we're gonna got a real big opportunity here we need more money to pursue it effectively
1: so I sort of raised the first 500 through I guess what is now I I now know as a family and friends round and that was enough to build the platform and or the platform as it then existed and then we went well if we're going to go to market and actually get a panel of legal experts we can't do that with no money and that was the point at which we started seeking external capital. My fellow executive director Nick Northcott introduced me to some folks in Perth who are early seed investors. After a lot of hard work we got them on board and that's how we got going But that was really selling them the dream because we had some validation from the legal profession and others.
0: But it was pretty much pre-revenue? It was very
1: pre-18 months (laughs) pre-revenue. Right, okay. (laughs) But we couldn't have built it without that. So it's one of those chicken and egg things.
0: Yeah. And look, I think it's an interesting thing in these tech businesses because ultimately these investors are also sophisticated both in the literal sense and in the figurative sense. They know what they're getting into they ultimately back a proposition they back someone they believe can execute on it. So
1: it's all about yeah who is what is the idea? does it have legs? who is the founder and do they yeah can they execute and I think they knew that I would die trying basically and that that's why they invested.
0: Yeah and what about other elements of capital raising how distracting it is you know when you've got a business to run a complex platform to build, a development team in LA of all places. How do you manage that? Because capital raising is a completely uh, time consuming, oh, all consuming enterprise in itself. It's very hard. I mean, we were.
1: The fact that we managed to get those guys from Alto Capital on board made a massive difference because once we had them, then they sort of shipped me all around Perth to talk to all their mates at Cottesloe Beach and all the rest, and they kind of so paved the way. It was terrible. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was like, we're going to talk to Jono and.
0: You are out on the beach?
1: <laughs> out on the beach. Ma- magic. And they sort of get around in shorts and thongs. Yeah,
0: and yeah. So they
1: made a lot of money in mining and speculative investments. I think some of these guys, not all of them, and some of them were very serious when we got Canaccord. And there's just a network. Yes. And we tapped into that network. Yeah. And then through them we ended up being introduced to Thorny and then we did the big round last year which...
0: 3.75 million.
1: Yep. So that was huge because obviously of Alex is sort of gravitas in the market
0: and his track record of track picking record. winners is pretty amazing was in the paper again today with something else that's uh shooting the lights out so there's some more pressure for you
1: oh it's pressure on the one hand but it's also just great because they're so helpful
0: yeah yeah
1: and you know the rolodex of people that they know and their willingness to help i mean i ring them up and say what do you think about this and that and they're really open and helpful yeah which is great they're not sort of passive and in the background, they're very much there for what you need them for.
0: Yeah, and I think, again, it goes to show when you're doing not just the family and friends and uh, any kind of round when it comes to tech and there's quite a long runway between development and getting the clients and getting revenue is that you have to pick the right people to sit as your shareholders and backers because you don't want someone calling up once a week saying, how's the company valuation going? No. Are we any closer to getting an exit? And that happens if, you know, you end up with unsophisticated investors, as I call them.
1: Most of the people who've invested, perhaps with the exception of my parents, had money to lose. And they only invested, I guess, the cream of their portfolio on something that they hoped they'd get a 10x return on.
0: Yeah. And what about now? You've got this team. How have you found building a team? Hard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they're, they're great fun. I mean, I do pinch myself at the quality of the people that we have, from the engineers through to... Marketing and the legal innovation people I mean we're they're very diverse, so we sort of ha- taken active active diversity measures so I, I mean in age and gender and every possible measure yeah try really hard, but that makes it super fun because you've got you know everything from sixty down to twenty yes and they're all remote.
0: It's the rich tapestry of life really
1: yeah and they're they're cool. I mean they're all very committed and it feels like a big family in some ways. There's always it, it's managing the sort of tensions that emerge. I think in a team environment, particularly one that's so agile and so fast moving,
0: yeah,
1: is always hard. Yeah, but they, you know, they get left to their own devices a lot, and they just kind of they're all self-starters because otherwise they wouldn't work in this environment
0: yeah and i was going to say like you know lawyers are often very self-directed very uh, sort of assertive a type personalities and tech not so much it can be a bit the other way it can be a lot of passive types especially in developers and without wanting to stereotype some of them can be uh, you know not as socially forthcoming so is it any... pretty good yeah okay i was but, gonna yeah. say any i mean if they've been at google then they're probably uh outliers in some respects both Mm -hmm. in terms of their capabilities but any changes in management style you felt for yourself going from corporate law firm oh
1: totally yeah you have to dial it down i mean the way that we were managed as lawyers and the way that i guess i traditionally managed as a senior associate deal teams and stuff is very command and control i mean it's just the way that it was and it you know remains i don't know if it's still like that in law firms now but like you just did what you were told, and that was that. Yes. So every yes. now and then I,
0: <laughs> <laughs> every
1: now and then I sort of come up against that. I'm like, well, we're doing it because I said that's my decision, and that I think that the team are kind of used to that a bit. But it is funny how you, you sort of have to to really try to bring out that sort of collaborative af- aspect of your personality because that actually breeds a better, probably a better outcome when you take the time to listen to everyone's opinion and and sort of air something and let it kick around for a while, you end up in a better place. Just to- a bit totally. It takes longer and it's yeah. more arduous to get there.
0: Yeah. yeah legal teams are high-performing but they're you know, quite often found at the pub late at night drinking too much and complaining a lot about their workplace. Whereas That's
1: right, yeah. in
0: tech teams, you know, maybe they don't have that, well, some of them do, but sometimes you don't have that really hard edge to it. But, jeez, it's a lot nicer workplace to be a part of.
1: I try to whack it if I see it. It happens. It does happen occasionally. But the people that are here are all here because they want to want to be here. Yes. They're not here because it's a money making situation, really. I mean, they're all being paid, but not probably at the top of their market value because you just can't in a startup. Yeah. So they're not here under duress like some of us were, as article clerks or grads or whatever.
0: I blame my parents for that. myself. <laughs> that's a different. That's a whole other podcast. Look, I think it's a, an amazing story. I love the fact that. You know, some of these archaic institutions, which are incredibly hard to, to reach, are becoming more accessible for people. I'm sure there's a lot more walls to, to climb over and break through as you go, but the technology ultimately and the results speak for themselves and that'll be what wins the day. So good luck with all of that. But Thank you so much. Before we finish, the quickfire round. Ah. Oh. So what invention do you hope to see in your lifetime?
1: Probably flights to Mars, which is not really an invention, but it's it's progress. But I guess the thing that I really hope, I actually really genuinely hope that they resolve the climate change issue and that, that the world kind of comes together on that because that's the thing that keeps me awake at night, worrying about the kids and their kids is surely humans are resourceful enough to fix that problem. It'll be... Not too late, hopefully, not too late.
0: Yeah, that'll be the big question mark when they actually decide to be resourceful. What's a lesson you've learned the hard way Not to be too good. What book should every company builder read?
1: The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Oh,
0: my favourite book. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I read that book and cried. I'm like, someone understands what I'm going through.
0: We actually talked about it today because we had to swap out our development team because of what's happening in India. And, you know, we were... Complaining about how difficult it was and then I just said walking up the stairs, I said, well, just read the hard thing about hard things, that will give you some comfort. It's not unique to us. No, nope, that's absolutely right. What's the main reason people who get into disputes actually end up in court? Stubbornness. Ego?
1: Ego and the principle of the matter. I've often joked with my executive director, that the principle of the matter are the lawyer's favourite words. This <laughs> is just, there's usually a human There's a human issue there when you have a dispute. It's very often a legal issue. Very, very rarely a legal issue. It's often a human issue.
0: Yeah, yeah. Interesting. What experience shaped who you are?
1: My childhood, my dad, my mum, the way that they raised me and the lessons that they taught me.
0: What's the question you were asked more than any other?
1: It used to be how do you do all of this as a mum? Now it's how do you manage being a barrister and an entrepreneur at the same time?
0: It's a fair question. What advice should first-time founders heed?
1: Think long and hard about whether you really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> do you have the tenacity and the commitment to, to keep getting up, keep waking up in the middle of the night and thinking, what am I doing with my life? You've got to get to that point and get through it so many times that you have to be really committed to to it. I think. It's an
0: exercise in pushing self-doubt aside. It is really is. And, yeah, just... Pure commitment and graft. Hustle. Yeah, and hustle as well. so many things. But, yeah, the tenacity to keep going is probably number one. Absolutely. I know you're super busy. Mediation's very exciting. No doubt when the travel ban lifts as well, you'll be off to other jurisdictions trying to get it in there and visit the development team in Los Angeles. So today, thanks very much for your time, your story, and, and thank you for being on Discipline.
1: Thank you so much. It was great.